Good morning, friends. It's good to see you all and to have this opportunity to open up God's word together with you. I'm going to go ahead and pray for us one more time briefly, and then we will dive in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp to our feet. We pray that through your word, you would lighten the path before us, that we might walk in your ways, and that we might come into your very presence through your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this all in his name. Amen. All right, friends, I'm going to go ahead and ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be looking specifically this morning at verses 17 to 21. If you're using the Bible that we provided, you'll find the passage on page 1014, 1014. As always, I want to encourage you to open to the passage so that you can follow along as I read it in a few moments. And I also want to encourage you not to close the Bible after we read it but to keep it open in front of you because we'll be looking at it often in our time together. It's been a few weeks since we were last in 1 Peter, so I want to take a moment to set the stage for our passage today. We think back to verses 1 to 12, the first half of 1 Peter, where Peter describes the glorious salvation that God has accomplished for us. We heard that God chose us in eternity past. He set us apart by his spirit. He cleansed us by the blood of Christ. Not only that, we read and learned that God caused us to be born again, gave us a living hope and an eternal, imperishable inheritance that he guarantees we will receive because he is guarding us by his own sovereign power as we hold fast to him by faith. The salvation God has accomplished for us is so glorious that we learn that the prophets earnestly pleaded with God to experience it, and the angels in heaven longed to better understand it. But what the prophets and angels long for has been given to us. And after all of that, Peter tells the Christians to whom he's writing how they should live in response to all of that. I want you to look at verse 13 of chapter 1. Peter says, Therefore, because of that glorious salvation, now do this. Last time we were in 1 Peter, we considered Peter's instructions for us to set our hope fully on Jesus and to live holy lives. In light of all of that God has done, set your hope fully on Jesus and be holy because God is holy. And now this week, we're going to consider his third instruction for how we should live in light of who God is and what he's done for us. I want you to follow along as I read verses 17 to 21 for us now. This is God's word. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, 
but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. If you're taking notes, the main instruction Peter has for those of us who understand ourselves to be Christians is we should live our lives with fear so that you don't think I've gone off the reservation that I'm preaching something that is false to you. I want you to look at me again at verse 17. I'm only saying what Peter says. He says in the second half of verse 17, conduct yourselves with fear. And this isn't a mistranslation of a complex or nuanced Greek word. The Greek word is phobos, from which we get the word phobia or fear of. Christians are to live their lives with fear. What we see in the rest of the passage is that Peter gives us two reasons that, when thoughtfully considered, should naturally lead us to a place of understanding what Peter says and agreeing with him in it. What are those two reasons? Well, these are going to be my two points if you're taking notes. We should live with fear because of the impartiality of God's judgment, and we should live with fear because of the preciousness of Christ's sacrifice. We should live with fear because of the impartiality of God's judgment, and we should live with fear because of the preciousness of Christ's sacrifice. So first, if you're following along with me, we should live with fear because of the impartiality of God's judgment. Look again at verse 17. I want you to notice how Peter starts. He says, and if you call on him as father. It's an interesting way to start, right? After all that Peter said, what do, you, what do you mean by if, Peter? You just got done telling us about how God chose us and how we've been born again and now God has graciously and gloriously saved us. Are, are you saying we're not actually Christians? Well, no, I don't think that's what Peter intends them to hear when he says that. He obviously assumes they're Christians, but by using the conditional if-then structure, he's inviting them to reflect on their own confession of faith and then helping them to see what should follow from that confession. So let me just briefly, lovingly, do the same with you. Do you call on God as Father? Let me draw in more of what Peter has said to sharpen and refine that question. Have you repented of sin and set your hope fully on Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and your future salvation at his second coming? Does that describe you this morning? If so, then conduct yourselves with fear. Live your life with fear. But why? Why should we live our lives with fear? Well, I want you to notice the specific attribute of God that Peter highlights and the future event in which that attribute will be most clearly exercised. That helps us understand why why we should live with fear. Look at verse 17 again. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, then... 
conduct yourselves with fear. It's as though he's saying, if you call on God as father, remember that your father is also the judge of all the earth who is going to perfectly and impartially judge everyone for everything they've ever done. Or to flesh it, flesh it out a bit more, he's saying, live with fear because you know that when Jesus returns, the dead will be raised and all people who have ever lived will be brought before the almighty God, the ancient of days, the holy one of Israel, the one before whom the mountains melt like wax, the one from whom nothing is hidden, the one who will expose everything done in the darkness to the splendor of his glorious light, the one before whom the hearts of all will be laid bare. At the judgment, this holy and awesome God will pull every single one of our files. He will empty it out before him and he will perfectly and impartially render judgment on everything we have ever thought, said, or done. Conduct yourselves with fear. I want you to listen to how John describes that event in Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. You can notice what John said. I saw the dead, great and small, the mighty and the insignificant all identical before the great throne of God. All of the glory we seek before one another and from one another, all distinctions that result in partiality in our world are absolutely leveled before the great throne and the holy and impartial God who sits on it. The CEO of BlackRock will stand beside a garbage man. Heads of state will stand next to local McDonald's drive through clerks. And all, all will be judged against the standard of God's perfect holiness. Our hearts will be sifted, our words will be scrutinized, and our actions will be assessed by the awesome, infallible, and impartial judge. This day is a day to be feared and dreaded precisely because of who we will face in that judgment. 
we will face the one that Jacob called the fear of Isaac. The one Isaiah said, the Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. Now let me just relieve the pressure a little bit for those who have trusted in Jesus. The good news for Christians is that through faith in Jesus Christ, we no longer need to fear that judgment. Though our sins may be many, God's mercy will be more. In the judgment, when God inspects our lives, Jesus will step forward as our advocate and plead his blood over us. He will plead his righteous record that has been imputed to us by faith, and God will declare us innocent and free to enter his heavenly kingdom because Christ has paid the full penalty for our sins. But just because we no longer need to fear God's judgment does not mean we no longer need to fear God. One of the things that's plainly taught in Scripture is that those who know God and love God also fear God. Psalm 130, verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness so that you may be feared. Forgiveness from God leads to fearing God because now we know who God really is. You think even of what, how Paul describes all of mankind prior to salvation. He says of all of humanity, there is no what of God before their eyes. There is no fear of God before their eyes. When God saves us, that's not when we stop fearing God. That's when we start fearing God because we come to know his holy and awesome power. We don't fear his judgment, but now we see him as he truly is. We fear God because we've come to know his holiness, his power, his might and authority. We know that God is a consuming fire. That he's enthroned above the highest heavens. That he is a mighty warrior who reigns that he stirs up a tempest in the oceans with a word, that peals of thunder and bolts of lightning emanate from his presence, that the sound of his voice strips the forest bare and all in his temple cry, glory, our God is a holy God. Therefore, whenever throughout scripture, whenever anyone encounters the presence of God, they are terrified. When Abraham encountered God, terror fell over him. When the Israelites encountered God at Sinai, they begged not to have to come into his presence. And Moses, at the sight of God, said, I am full of fear and trembling. When Isaiah laid his eyes on God seated upon the throne whose, robed, whose robe filled the temple, he cried out, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. Now, some might hear those references and say, but John, those are, those are all Old Testament examples. In Jesus, God is love, and we have nothing to fear. And I would agree, in part. We don't need to fear his judgment, praise God, but we should absolutely fear him for who he is, which is why in the New Testament, we see people responding to the presence of God in the same way. Right when Peter saw Jesus transfigured on the mountain, what did he do? 
He started bumbling and talking about making tents. And Mark helpfully tells us he started bumbling and talking about making tents because he was terrified. Right? When Jesus stilled the storm with a word, his disciples were filled with great fear. Or the Apostle John, the one who Jesus loved in Revelation when he encountered the glorified Christ. He described him and said his eyes were like a flame of fire. His body like burnished bronze refined in a fire. His voice was like rushing waters. He held seven stars in his hand. He had a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. His face was shining like the sun in full strength. You can't even look at it. And John responded to him by falling down as though he was dead. He was so terrified. Did you, what, anybody know what happens next? That glorified Jesus reaches down and what does he say? Fear not. It doesn't get better than that. Fear not. Do you see yourself, Lord? I do, but you don't need to fear me. Fear not. The holy and awesome God is in your midst. He is your provider. He sings over you. He loves you. He has saved you through his son. But he, friends, is to be feared. He is a holy and awesome God. Our God isn't to be played with. He isn't to be trifled with. He isn't to be treated as inconsequential or insignificant. He is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, love, and power. Our God is an awesome God. What does Moses say about him after the Exodus? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory working wonders for his people, and he is to be feared above all. To my brothers and sisters in Christ, are you living with this fear of God? This healthy, good, commanded, reverential awe of the God who is your father and who also dwells in unapproachable light. If you're a believer and talk of fearing God makes you uncomfortable, right? It just, maybe it just feels wrong to you. I just want to gently challenge you to submit and subject your feelings to Scripture, right? And to what Scripture teaches us about God. And what we learn about God is that he is both near to his people, theological terms, imminent. He is among us. He is near as Father, and he is also, at the same very time, transcendent. The Lord Most High over all the earth, exalted far above all other so-called gods. C.S. Lewis tried to capture the tension of God's love, his nearness, and his fearful power in his classic work, The Chronicles of Narnia. If you've read it, the main, or if you haven't read it, the main character of that uh, series of books, Aslan, he is a mighty lion. He's also a Christ figure. He symbolizes Jesus, and he embodies God's attributes throughout those books. And in one of the more famous exchanges, the children hear about Aslan from a pair of beavers, talking beavers. Mr. Beaver tells Susan, one of the girls, about Aslan, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. 
Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Susan asks, is he, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Mrs. Beaver responds, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Well, friends, that, that is a wonderful portrayal of our God. He is a mighty lion. He is not safe at all, but he is good. And he can be approached through his son, Jesus Christ, by anyone who puts their faith in him. Friends, if we choose to ignore what scripture so clearly teaches about fearing God, even as Christians, because we can't fathom a God so awesome and with so much power, we're doing what the Bible calls making a God in our own image. And we don't wanna be guilty of doing that. Right, if the God you worship is a God of only grace, of only meekness and approachability, a God you can't ever fathom fearing, then you fashioned a God who isn't the God of Scripture. The God of Scripture is both Father and Holy Judge. A God of love and a God of power so awesome it cannot be described with words. He is good, but he isn't safe. And we should live with fear. Fear of the impartiality of his judgment. And we see also that we should live with fear because of the preciousness of Christ's sacrifice. And that brings us to point two. We should live with fear because of the preciousness of Christ's sacrifice. Let's look at the text again, starting at the top. Peter says, and if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing or because you know that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We're to live with fear because we know how precious, priceless, and invaluable was the blood that was shed to ransom us from slavery to sin, right? We're to live with fear because we know how great the price was that God paid to ransom us from sin. He paid for our freedom and forgiveness with the blood of his perfect, spotless, and blameless son. But before we talk about what this means for Christians, I wanna briefly address anyone here who may not be a follower of Jesus. I wanna help you see how Almost nearly the entire message of the Bible is contained in these few verses and also help you see the good news that's here for you. As Peter has already said, there is a day coming when you will stand before the throne of God and he will assess everything that you've ever said, done, or thought. And because all of us have sinned, you and I, if we don't put our faith in Jesus, will be found guilty by God and according to Jesus, we will be condemned to everlasting judgment. The holy and awesome God 
who is to be feared, is an impartial judge, right? At the judgment, he will not be swayed, he won't be pleaded with, or he, and he won't be bribed. He will mete out perfect judgment on all who've sinned. And yet this God, who is to be feared, is also a God of love and mercy. He sent his own son into the world to ransom us. I want you to think about that word ransom, right? Ransoms are paid to set captives free. God the Father, who loves his children, sent his beloved son into the world to ransom us, to set us free from our bondage, our captivity to sin. I want you to notice how Peter describes it in verse 18. Look there with me. Jesus came to ransom us from the futile ways inherited from our forefathers. What's he talking about there? What does he mean by that? What he means is that we are all born into this world knowing that God exists. But because we're all born into this world also captive to sin, we reject God and refuse to love and worship him as the true God. But because we were created to worship and because we refuse to worship the true God, we create false religions and we end up worshiping things that aren't God. In Peter's day, the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers would have referred to all of the various pagan religions that existed throughout the world that were handed down from one generation to the next. In our day, Peter would be referring to largely the same thing. All of the major religions of the world outside of Christianity, as well as things like outright atheism or agnosticism or the rapidly growing category of people who are spiritual but not religious, right? The spiritual but not religious person creates a personal stew of sorts from all the belief systems of the world, right? It may have some Christianity and a few carefully chosen Christian ethics in it mixed with Eastern mysticism, maybe some transcendentalism then seasoned with environmentalism or political activism or the pursuit of personal wellness or hedonism or materialism. Every stew tastes different because every chef is their own God. But whether we're talking about major religions or the spiritual but not religious, Peter describes those ways of living as futile and empty. That may seem like a harsh thing to say, but he describes them that way because none of those religions, none of those views of the world rightly identifies the God who made us nor adequately deals with our ultimate problem, which is that we have sinned against God and fallen short of his glory. While it's popular in our world right now to view the problem as out there, the problem is billionaires, the problem is poor education, the problem is corrupt politicians, the problem is white supremacy, the problem is toxins in the food and environment, the, po- the problem is negative people disrupting my energy and flow. The modern person's view of the world is that the problem is out there. And while there are problems out there, the reason that there are problems out there is because there are people out there, people just like you and me. And the problem is that the problem is not just in them, but also in us. The Christian view of the world is that the problem is in here, in each of us. All of us is born captive to sin, born enslaved to sin. 
and we don't have the tools or resources to fix ourselves. No juice cleanse or clean products or participation in a protest against a particular injustice can cleanse us from the stain that has stained our entire soul. None of these things can pay the ransom price for our freedom. These are all like the perishable things that Peter describes, like silver or gold that Peter is saying could never adequately deal with our sins. They are futile and empty. You could take the entire GDP of the entire world, pile it up into a gigantic pile of real silver and gold and shove it in front of God and say, now, please forgive us. And he will swipe it away in a moment. Perishable things like silver or gold or good works to try and please God cannot adequately deal with the sins that we have committed against a holy and magnificent God. But we praise God. And the good news of Christianity is that God has done what we could never do for ourselves. Though we have sinned against a holy and awesome God and are destined to stand before him in judgment, that same God, out of the abundance of his great love for us, sent his son into the world to pay the ransom price for our sins by dying in our place as a sacrifice. Maybe you're somewhat familiar with the Bible even. Maybe you even have even read parts of the Old Testament and you're just put off or don't understand all of the sacrificing of animals and what is all of that about and the shedding of blood and all throughout the Old Testament just doesn't make any sense and you're just wondering like, what is this all about? What does this have to do with Jesus? All of that is meant to prepare us for him and for what he came to do. It all foreshadows what God is going to do in Jesus. Peter says Jesus is like the spotless lamb. It may be hard to find a more loaded image in scripture than that one. You go back all the way to Exodus. Exodus, when God ransomed the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, what did those Israelites have to do to participate in God ransoming them? Any kids know? What did they have to do to protect themselves from judgment and participate in what God was going to do? Jack? Animal sacrifices, particularly, what did they have to do with that animal, that sacrifice animal? Simon? They had to put blood over their door to signal that they were being protected from judgment. Now, where did that blood have to come from? What type of animal? Abram. A spotless lamb. Just like Peter is talking about. Peter's going all the way back to Exodus. And he's going to Leviticus. You go to Leviticus, there's all sorts of sacrifices. After the people had been ransomed out of slavery, how did they remain in right relationship with God? By offering the blood of a spotless lamb to God to pay for their sins. Or you go to Isaiah 53. When God promises to send his chosen servant into the world who will rescue his people from their sins, that chosen servant will be like a spotless lamb whose sacrificial death brings our healing. This is why when John the Baptist first sees Jesus, he exclaims, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Throughout the entire Old Testament, God was preparing the world for this unbelievable act when he would come in the flesh when he would die in our place 
when he would pay the price for our sins so that we could be set free from sin and come to know God as our Father. Friends, that forgiveness is offered to you today fully and completely in Jesus Christ. If you don't understand yourself to be a follower of Jesus and you think, ah, I can't, I just, I just can't come, God will not accept me, that it, nothing could be further from the truth. Christ's death in the place of sinners is great enough to cover over any and all sins of those who trust in him. The ransom price for your freedom has been paid by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And to receive forgiveness and to experience that freedom, all you need to do is lay hold of Jesus by faith. Believe in him. Look to him. Turn from sin and put your trust entirely in him. And for those who already have, see how precious is the blood of Jesus Christ. The one who died for us is not just some man who lived 2,000 years ago. He is, as verse 19 says, the Christ, the promised Messiah who was also, as verse 20 says, foreknown before the foundation of the world, meaning he is the eternal son of God who existed with God and was God before the world was created. And he is the one who was chosen to take on flesh and die in our place to free us from sins. He was manifest in these last times for the sake of you. And to verify his identity as the son of God and to prove that God accepted his sacrifice, we learn in verse 21 that God raised him from the dead. The spotless lamb is also the one that we have already sung about. He is the risen lamb, the king who is now glorified, seated at the right hand of God in heaven, awaiting the time when he will come to deliver his people and judge the living and the dead. Brothers and sisters, do you see why you should live with fear in this world? Consider who it is who shed his blood for your freedom. The eternal God, the holy God, the awesome God, took on flesh to shed his blood for your freedom and mine. And this God-man, now resurrected and glorified, is seated in the heavens at the right hand of God and is coming again to judge the living and the dead. So how could we ever trample on his precious blood by giving ourselves to live in the sins that he paid so great a, great a price to set us free from and that we know will end in destruction at the judgment seat of God. I'm not sure how many of you saw the video of Nancy Mace, the congresswoman from South Carolina a couple weeks ago. Mace is a Christian congresswoman from South Carolina she was speaking at the annual South Carolina prayer breakfast, and 
in her remarks when she came up to speak, I don't know what she was generally there to speak about because all that's been shown is what she said uh, that I'll comment here in a moment. In, in, in her remarks, she joked that she was gonna be late to the prayer breakfast because her fiance, whom she was sleeping with the night before, was trying to sleep with her after they woke up. And she joked to this group of Christians, calling herself a Christian, and was like, don't worry, babe, we, we can do it later. Look, I, I have literally, genuinely zero desire to pile on and to, to comment on what she has said. People have responded with outrage, and that is not what I want to do. I simply want to make the observation that her comments are a perfect example of what it looks like to not conduct yourself with fear. Jesus did not shed his precious blood so that we would give ourselves to and even joke openly about the very sins he died to set us free from. But Mace's comments also give us an opportunity for self-reflection. How many of us, if our conversations were televised, if our actions, whether done in private or public, were displayed for all to see, if our Google search history was published for all to read, how many of us would find evidence that we too aren't living in fear as we ought? How many of us are having sex outside of marriage? Or watching things that are sexually immoral that we know we shouldn't watch? Or getting drunk? Or using drugs? Or yelling in anger at our spouse? Or kids? Or siblings? or stealing from an employer, or cheating in school, or lying to friends and family, or harboring bitterness towards God and towards other people, or willfully neglecting the needs of our neighbors, or spreading gossip and lies, and so many other things that Jesus shed his precious blood to set us free from. One pastor tried to illustrate what it's like when Christians engage in sin in light of the precious blood and the ransom that was paid for us by asking us to imagine a family who gets a call that their teenage daughter has been kidnapped. The kidnapper asks for a $5 million ransom to be brought to a specific location to set the girl free. The family exhausts all their resources and more to come up with the money. They go broke paying the ransom and have relied on others giving major sums to help and they're gonna have to pay those sums back. They're told by the kidnapper to go to a specific field and to bring the money in a bag and to set it out in the field and to return to their car to wait. When they arrive, they see a car on the other side of the field. They bring the money out into the middle of the field and they return to wait anxiously in their car. Then they see their beloved daughter get out of the car. Then they see her begin walking across the field and then running and their heart is filled with joy. But then when she gets to the money, the daughter stops, picks it up, thumbs her nose at her family and runs back to her kidnapper and takes off with them. 
and the money. You imagine the horror, the shock and betrayal you would feel as her parent? Friends, it's a small picture of what we do in the face of God when we choose to sin knowingly after having received such a staggering ransom price to set us free. It's like we're running back to the futile ways again. I shed the blood of my son to bring you out of that futility and now you're returning to it. We don't live with fear. If we go on making a practice of sinning willfully and without repentance, the author of Hebrews says there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, only the fearful expectation of judgment. If you understand yourself to be a Christian, but are consciously choosing to live in sin, not fighting against it, not repenting, not doing anything of those, any, any of those things, my encouragement you, to you today is to conduct yourself with fear. Turn from sin. Turn from the sin that Christ shed his blood to ransom you from. And for those who are fighting, who are grieved by their sins, who, as the end of verse 21 says, whose faith and hope are in Jesus, as you live with fear, you should also experience the tender embrace of your Father. Our holy and awesome Father is a God who gives us more grace, whose mercies are new every day, and who remains faithful to us even when we are faithless to him. I say this not to contradict the call to fear, nor to provide an excuse for living in sin, but to give you genuine gospel assurance. The God who chose you, who has caused you to be born again, who has given you a living hope and an imperishable inheritance, will bring to completion the work he began in you. He will keep every single one of his promises to you and will, by his own power and glory, keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory, not with fear, but with great joy. Live with fear now that you might be filled with great joy then. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please teach us to fear you rightly. Remind us of your holy and awesome power and of the exceedingly precious blood that was shed for our sins so that we might walk in a manner worthy of you in the week to come. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.